My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. I'm often asked why I got interested in responsible fashion. And I guess people ask because I've worked in magazines for a long time, so they think, well, what, what drew me to this supposed niche? And, I mean, the answer is partly that I don't think it should be a niche. I think that fashion's ethics and the way the business operates and its scorecard when it comes to people and planet, that that stuff should be up for general discussion. But if you're after an event, a watershed moment, when I stopped and thought, hang on a minute, we seriously need to shift the fashion conversation here, then that was Rana Plaza. The Rana Plaza factory disaster in Dhaka, Bangladesh, was the deadliest garment industry accident in history. When the buildings collapsed, which was on April 24th, 2013, they killed more than 1,134 people and injured about 2,500 more. Bangladesh is the second largest garment producer in the world after China. About 4 million workers are employed by the garment industry there and about 3.5 million of them are women. Most aged between 18 and 24, many with children. So that makes this a feminist issue. This is a story about human rights, but it's also a story about women's rights and about the violation of those rights. In this episode, recorded in person quite close to the fourth anniversary of Rana Plaza, we are joined by one of my feminist heroes, a woman who fights for the rights of Bangladeshi garment workers and who used to be one herself. She was a child worker. A woman who is noisy and committed and who won't give up. A woman who has been jailed and bullied, but who refuses to stay quiet. And wait till you hear her talk about how her mum inspired this in her. It's so cool. She is Kalpona Akter, Executive Director of the Bangladesh Centre for Worker Solidarity. And we're going to hear her powerful story. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Kalpona. Thank you so much for having me in this show. It is really a pleasure. It's our pleasure. Kalpana, most most garment workers in Bangladesh are women. Why is that? Yeah, I think it is an interesting question. Um, yeah, the most garment worker, like it is over 80% of us are women worker and they're young women. And it's mostly, you know, bef- what they would do prior to this work before coming. So they would do the domestic work and... Culturally, most of the domestic worker, I would say it's like almost 99% of them are women. So when they switched, they switched this job. So this was the first reason why it is. The second is the factory owners are clever. Um, so they know that women, can, women has like that much patience even 
if you shout on them, if you tell them to do excessive production, if you, you know, just retaliate them, they will not speak out. Right. It is different for the men. So the, it's a clever strategy of the factory owners to do that, to bring these women in the industry. And it also says that there is a funny thing. They say is that the women's finger are like more softy and more accurate for the garment worker and yeah, sewing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why. Because, you know, like if you go to any South Asian country, like country like Bangladesh, you're going to see we do a lot of needlework uh, that we teach when we just kid. So the factory owners out there, they know that. Yeah. That's why. I've also heard that about child workers, that they have nimble fingers, you know, that they can be useful because mm -hmm. they can do this work. Exactly. So the child worker, it was a big issue in the garment industry in back 90s. And, yeah, I'm one of that child, of course, who started in age of 12. And I went to the factory with my 10-year-old brother. So in that time, like having helper, like helping the operator was very important and we were the kids who would do that helping you know having the bundle of the fabrics in our head and running around and giving to other operators or cutting the thread so those are our kind of like helping job that we want to do, used to do but child labor is not a big issue in the garment industry but they are the issue in the country like you know if you know Bangladesh or do a little research, you would know that Bangladesh is very famous for one kind of sari. You know, the, we sari, saw the issue. Yeah, yeah we, we wear sari. So it's called jamdani. It is totally a handmade. It is beautiful. There is no doubt. And there is a too, I mean, so much work. And they use child to make those jamdani. Is it is it embroidery or beadwork? What it is a thread, you know, thread work, the golden thread, ah, and then the, the threads, silver threading. Yeah. But it is all handmade. It is that's so beautiful. You know, it is iconic. When you see that, you just cannot move your eyes on that. And it is that expensive that it is starts with a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars and up to I think two thousand or two thousand five hundred dollars. So those kids, I mean, many of the kids working there, and there are child workers in other industry as well, other hazard, hazardous industry. I want to get back to your own story later on, but on this subject of um, female garment workers in Bangladesh now, I wonder if you could just describe for me a kind of typical day of a female garment worker, because it's not just working in the factories, it's also then working in the home afterwards, right? That's true. That's totally true. So let me start from her journey, not from a day, how she ended up to coming a factory. So she lives in, in the countryside, and sometimes she decides is because the first reason is definitely the poverty, and second reason sometimes comes with the environment because we are down to the sea level. So the flood and, you know, natural disaster is pretty common in the coastal area and we lose the land and those people lose their land and house and, you know, the agriculture field. So what they would do? They need to survive. So they try to find a job. 
So and this it's, it adds up to kind of mass migration from the country exactly. to the city, right? Yeah. So this is one reason. And other is like someone got early marriage and husband left her or she ha- she's in an abusive relationship. Then what did she do? Because she, you know, she depend on that man. But when she came to know that she can also earn and she can have a job and she can step in a economic freedom, then she starts searching where she can go. If there is any neighbor or any village people or any of her relative knows that she can channel out to the city and get a job. So this is how she ended up to find a job. And then she come to city through those people or any of them, any of her relative or friend or any, you know, neighbor. And she just get job straight to the factory without knowing the culture, without knowing the, what nature of job she's going to do. So the first thing is a cultural shock for her. She never saw the city with that many people. Yeah. She never never heard this burst horn honking all the time. She never heard that, uh, you know, your supervisor can shout on you. So, I mean, it is, it, it, it's a shock for her. I bet, yeah. And, and at, at, at in the neighborhood where she lives, in the community, it's a shocking for her because she never stayed with that many people in one big house. Like, it's like separate rooms. It's not an apartment even. It's a, like piece of land, and then you have a house like in a serial. It's a tin shed house uh, with brick walls. And it's just surprised her that she she would be in the queue to cook. Because when even if she was in the village, she would have her own kitchen, though it is a wooden kitchen, which is okay, but it was her own. Anyway, so she ended up getting a job. Now, just explain that how, how is her day look like. So she literally wake up at 4.30 or 5 because she's, she has a sharing uh, the kitchen and it might be 4 to 6 burner or 8 burner sometime, which is using by 20 families 20 families yes and most of them they work in the factory or elsewhere and everyone need to cook in the morning at the same time in the same time for them for their lunches lunches, breakfast or for the kids they will live at the house for day like 4 30 to 7 it's her battle she fight in the queue of cooking in the queue of using toilet because it's my it's maximum two to four toilets they have for almost 100 people. 7 to 7.30, she tried to try her best to have some breakfast and feed her kids or, you know, pack a lunch or, uh, you know, ready the breakfast for her husband too, which is so unhelpful. He just mm-hmm. don't help. Uh, he just gets sleep until 7 and then get shower when her, you know, his wife has started like two or three years ago. It is a familiar story the world over, that one. <laughs> yes, and we need to change. Five to eight, she needs to be in her machine. She needs to clean the machine, and at eight, she's start works. Eight on the dot, otherwise in trouble. She's otherwise in the trouble. If she late for three days, they will cut her one-day salary. So she needs to make sure that she don't do that because that one-day salary means a lot up to her. So... She start works and, you know, constant pressure of excessive production target she faced. There is a target for every hour and every hour target it starts 
depends on, or, you know, on the clothes they made. So, it, but it is not less than hundred or, or hundred twenty to hundred fifty pieces per hour. So yeah, she do maybe one operation. Any of them, she might be collar joining, she might be sleep joining, she might be doing the side CM, whatever. But she need to do like hundred twenty to hundred pieces per hour. So she is so much rushed that she cannot forget that she need to drink water. She forget that she need to use washroom because if she beyond her you know production target, she gonna be shouted or she need to work extra in the you know in the evening. And she will not even get paid. Because she has missed her targets, then she exactly. would be required to do overtime. Right. Unpaid. I mean, it is overtime, but unpaid. At close to five, she just thinks, am I allowed to go out now or I need to do overtime? When she thinks that, yeah, I wanted to go home, it is eight hours along. Uh, she's thinking about her kids or cooking in the evening or just thinking about herself that, oh, my gosh, it is so tiring. I need to go home. But the on the other hand, she also thinking, I should do some overtime hours because the wages I'm getting is not enough. You know, on the on the last ten days of the month, I need to think about what I need to cook because there is no money left. So she's thinking to do like extra few hours. And when she done all her hours, like eleven hours or sometimes eleven to fourteen hours, if she has like I mean shipment late time so when she's leaving the factory she's so exhausted with back pain with with dehydration there is nothing in her head just thinking about i need to go home on way back i need to buy some vegetables or whatever she can afford and i need to cook i need to be in the queue to cook and what my kids are doing Mm. So she arrived, if it is 8, I mean up to 8 she works, so she arrived 8.30 or 9 at house. Again, she started cooking, taking care of, I mean, her children. And husband comes, he might be watching TV if they have it, which is fancy for them, of course. If they, he's not watching TV, then he might be, you know, having hanging out with the friends or neighbors in the tea stall. He's not helping her. Mm. So by 10 or 10.30, she finished up the cook. It is dinner ready. And then she's remember that, oh, I need to wash my clothes because there was no time. So when she's break down herself for the day, and it is already 12 and when then, she go to bed. And then we'll get up and do it all again the next day. I want to, I want to ask you about what sort of wage she can expect for, for this kind of work. So... The minimum wage in Bangladesh today is? It is $68 a month. That is the minimum wage. And she add few bucks more with it if she do overtime. If she's an operator, she gets a little more, which is um, kind of like close to $80. A month. A month. And it is not enough for, for one person full month cost in Bangladesh. It is almost 35% of their money goes for house rent. So 35% of that minimum wage would typically be spent on the rent exactly. of a very modest house. Uh, it is just a semi-slum type house. Yeah. Okay, you cannot even think to be there, okay? Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have any choice. And uh, her wage is that poor that she cannot afford meat more than once in a month or sometimes not. Fish maybe twice in a month. 
mostly she lived in rice, vegetable, potato mash, or dal. No fruits. She doesn't have any savings. She doesn't have any money for medical. I was going to ask you about what if she wants to then send money back home to the country, to her family. This is going to be pretty difficult, right? It is pretty difficult. So it is a responsibility. Culturally, we take responsibility of our parents or sometimes brothers and sister who are younger than us. So if she, you know, uh, send money, if she's single and, you know, staying with other like six women in 10 by 12 feet room, so she saves money and send back to the house to parents. So she just keep that amount of money as less as she can just for her food and just for that rent. Mm. What would be a fair wage? And I know that workers, even just before Christmas, were protesting about this unlivable minimum wage. Mm-hmm. What do you think would be, it's a big question, but what, what would be fair in order to be able to live a reasonable life? Uh-huh. So, I mean, you know, honestly, I don't have answer to that. What would be the amount? Because it need, it need to be done a research that though many of them shouting are many different figure, like some of them saying 15,000 taka, which is almost uh, double, triple than the minimum wage now it is. Some of them says it should be like $200 a month. But I think before, you know, honestly, before we shout any number, we need to be precisely know that why we are asking that amount of money. Even if it is $200, are that enough? Or it is less, okay? Considering every single spend of the worker, like on food, on rent, on medical, on education, and of course, some savings. Considering everything, there should be a comprehensive research, and then we can go for a living wage campaign, not a minimum wage. We lived in minimum wage for three decades, and it's enough. Okay, Kalpana, in terms of of factory conditions, Mm -hmm. so not just wages, but what it's like in the factory, how much have things changed since Rana Plaza in 2013? And -hmm. and also, Rana Plaza wasn't the only factory disaster. It was the biggest, but it was, you know, it wasn't the only one. And I'm talking about many factory fires and incidents in, in other factories before that, and that continued to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How much have things changed? Well, I mean, yeah, one way you are definitely true that the Rana Plaza wasn't the only accident. And the first accident, the first, you know, disaster happened in back 1990 when a factory named Saraka has burned down and that killed even total, I think it is 30 killed, including the factory owner, one of the owner of the factory, because the doors was locked. The security guard went to have a tea when he was locking the padlocking the door from outside and the factory owner even couldn't, you know, escaped from the factory. And, and why were they locking workers inside the factories? It's going to be thrill you out if you hear why. Uh, the why is the factory owners think or management thinks that our workers will steal the merchandise when it is <laughs> fire in the factory. Or when you see that you are collapsing or you already collapse under a column or vim. Okay? So they're thinking that. So our life is less expensive than a merchandise. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, how do you react to that? I mean, my first reaction was to kind of laugh with incredulity. It is it is cruel. I mean, thinking that way, it is inhuman. So, it, all these accidents that throughout these years or decades we had to experience, like 1992, 2013, it is a series of accidents. We lost few thousand of our co-workers. And every single of them was preventable. It was not that, you know, it was not natural disaster. You could prevent it. You could prevent it by following the building code and it structurally build your factory for a factory that can take the enough weight that you wanted to put, not like Rana Plaza that you fill a pond with the sand and then you just start building a building, just building, not a factory, a commercial building, which was approved for five-story. Then you added the floor and you put tons of tons of tons of weight on that, which that building wasn't even ready to take. So without proper permits on unsafe foundations, uh-huh. kind of like cowboy extensions on these office buildings that can't take the weight of the machines, of the people, of the fabric rolls. Mm-hmm. And also the vibration because uh, the electricity is a huge issue. So they would have generator in every single floor, the huge generator. So the generator during it is running, it's make shaking. that shaking and vibration that the columns and the pillars wasn't ready to take. And the day when Rana Plaza collapsed, the electricity gone. Of course, there was a crack in the building. Which they already had seen. Oh, yeah. On 23rd of April, workers walk out. They were feared to come back. But they have been told that this building will be stay for 100 years. But it's not even stay for 100 minutes. So it was around 8.30 when, I mean, up to 8.30, workers has been pushed, slapped, you know, threatened to be in the factory. So physically coerced to go back into the unsafe building. Totally. And when they were in the factory, they start work. And within 20 minutes or 25 minutes, the electricity gone. So they started the generators. Soon they start generators. Boom. The factory collapse. It's so difficult to hear you say it. It is difficult. And that's just to hear it. I mean, Exactly. And I, I, you know, I was there for all those 17 days of the rescue. You, you just cannot, I mean, definitely the air was polluted because of smell, because of everything. The peoples are dying. Their body is being spoiling in that death trap, in that rubble. But in the same time, you can feel the pain and it's screaming, the crying in the air. You just can't take it. Just think about those families who is having a picture in their hand. The picture maybe from marriage, from maybe, you know, they have taken for any time. And asking every single people they see that, did you see my son? Did you see my daughter? Or kids are coming, where is my mom? This is my mom's picture. And whenever a one body is being rescuing, it's like thousands of people just jumped on to identify five, you know, if this is their beloved, 
even though there is they cannot even close to that to identify them because you know the face is not recognizable because of you know it was under collapse or because of the heat because it just you know spoiled so how they are you know recognizing them by seeing the clothes or sometimes like nose pain or sometimes some scratch they ever seen in their beloved's screen this is how they recognized so they're looking for jewelry or for exactly. some marks that they recognize so true it was so painful i mean i can't imagine how that must have made you feel but i i wanted to ask you what drives you to keep talking about these issues and it obviously has to do with that as well how how do you feel when you when you have to tell people that terrible story it is of course difficult to repeat because i'm a human too it is not easy for me to share these stories or for instance that mom who lost his son in the tajreen fashion fire he was only son in the family he was eight barely 20 years old and right after the fire took place in the factory son called to mom mom she lives in the countryside said mom there is a fire in the factory and mom was like you know taking her shawl and running to the door and saying to the son son try your best to escape and i'm taking a bus to the city and they were you know back and forth over phone and son was saying it was like smoke and flame in everywhere you cannot even breathe son still was on phone and talking to the mom that mom i can't find a way how how i'm going to escape it is a fire in everywhere smoke i cannot open my eyes and he was coughing and mom was constantly saying son please try to find a way a window maybe and try to escape that way so very last two calls are son says that mom there is no way that i can escape i don't know even where i am i'm close to a wall and the everything getting hit in here and i cannot stay and mom was saying okay can you find a toilet can you go there and open the tap and the water will inhale the smoke and son says mom yeah i can do that so he tried his best after half an hour mom already in ba- in the bus she's on her own way from a 100 kilometers away and son called her and said mom there is no way i will survive i open the tap but there is no water and the amount of smoke it cannot be inhaled by the water so i'm inhaling that so mom i'm dying but what i'm doing i'm binding my shirt in my waist in my waist and when you come please identify my body to oh. seeing this so mom was there already in the midnight she couldn't find the body in the morning around 10 i was there in the field i was there at 
5 in the morning when my coworker called and said that it is no more 9, it is more than 100, you should come. Because I was there up to 2.30 and I came back home. So when I saw her, she was like screaming, she was crying and telling every rescuer that, please find my son, he's in the toilet and he bind his shirt in his waist. Could you please find him? His body has been rescued and rescued as the way he has described to mom. So for me, it is not easy, easy to share all these stories. It is so painful for me as well. But I know it is extremely important to let people know that how workers are doing, those are behind the level. To let the consumers know that you have more responsibility than the price tag. You have more responsibility to make sure the people, those are making clothes for you, are in safe to ensure that that they have decent wage, they have a union voice at workplace. And, you know, their voice really matters. The consumer's voice really, really matters. Like sometimes consumers think that, you know, why I should take responsibility? I know this is making under sweatshop. It is simple that I would just boycott, not buy them. Yeah. That's not the answer. The boycott is not the solution. Not buying is not the solution. You, I mean, in the we are in a modern, we are in a 21st century. We cannot be naked. We need to buy. So if we don't buy the clothes that is made in Bangladesh, we need to buy Vietnam, El Salvador. We need to max, buy Mexico, China, or India. The consumers, there, please trust me, the condition is not far better. Mm. It is all same. Our building has collapsed. They are maybe collapsing, but you, consumer, can make change. You wrote a, a very powerful opinion piece for the Sydney Morning Herald last week that was emphasizing this point that boycotting made in Bangladesh doesn't help workers in Bangladesh. It's not that simple. That means no jobs. That's true. But I think consumers do feel, I mean, I feel listening to you and I buy clothes and I'm sure that any other listeners will be listening to this and thinking, I don't want to be culpable with anything coming close to what you're talking about here. So maybe they're confused, they don't really understand how to wield their power. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? What what can they do? Okay, I, I wanted to try these with an example mm-hmm. they already have done. Even they don't know they have done. Right. Like, you know, when Rana Plaza happened and before that touched in fashion fire, before that Gorib and Gorib fire, before that Darset Sportswear fire. So through all this a fire and collapse, we lost almost 1,800 workers just in a three years. Can I just repeat those those things just if, if we didn't quite hear them? So Rana Plaza was in 2013, and then there was the factory fire that was in Tazreen in 2012. And the there other one you mentioned... Gorib and Gorib, a factory f- a fire happened that was in 2010. There was another fire called That Seat Sportswear, you know, that was in 2010. So it is a series of fire. And maybe, you know, I forget a couple of them. Yeah. So these just considering... But that's just in a few exactly. years. Exactly. So these three years is about 18 to 1,800 to 2,000 workers lost their life. And many hundreds of them are lifetime injured. And because of this accident and, you know, losing the co-workers there, 
we thought it's a time for the brands, the retailers, the fashion brands globally, who are sourcing from my country, should take a responsibility to make these factories safer and end death toll. And we were being asking these companies to sign on the accord on Bangladesh fire and building safety. And they haven't, I mean, not all of them has signed before Rana Plaza. It was two of them who signed before Rana Plaza. And but those two were? Was a Fleeves Ban Huinson. It's a U.S. brand, uh, mostly renowned for Tommy Hilfiger yeah. and Calvin Klein. PVH Corp. PVH. They shorten it to. Mm-hmm. And so that's yes. Tommy Hilfiger. It's Calvin Klein. It's various jeans brands as yes, well. A true. big American giant. That's true. And other one was Chibo from Germany. So these two, these two has took responsibility even Rana Plaza happened, before Rana Plaza happened. So when Rana Plaza accident happened, it was all of us globally with the consumers. It is definitely, it was a global outcry, but it's totally made consumers angry across the globe that this is not done. And you all consumers was phenomenal. You did raise your voice. You made these companies to sign on this legally binding agreement. And now today we have over 200 brands who have signed on this agreement. And we have 11 Australian brands who did sign. And there are a couple of them, of course, haven't signed. One of them, Just Jeans. I just forget the other name. Is it Best and Less? Best and Less, yeah. So these brands haven't signed. So what accord has been done? I mean, you consumers, we all together, what we have done, when we say that we had to experience a 200 workers died in a factory fire or accident in every year, and I can happily share you that in 2016, I haven't experienced any workers died. So we made it. You consumers made it. You made this change. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. It's so good to hear that. Mm-hmm. My point is that whenever a shopper, a consumer hear this story, like the saddest story that I shared, I know it's going to make you cry, make you sad. But, you know, I would ask rather be sad, be angry. Mm. Okay. I know it's it feels sad, but if you don't angry, it will not make change. If you, if you are sad, that will make you that what I can do. I mean, you will think about that mom who lost her son, but if you are angry, that will make many moms happy that they can smile and think that their sons are, uh, son and daughters are safe in that factories. We're actually in an era of activism, a a reawakened era of activism. And we were talking previously to recording this about fashion revolution. Mm -hmm. There is possible to use our voices to collectively make change. And it is no use just being down downtrodden when you hear these stories you have to think yeah get some fire in your guts and mm-hmm. make a noise I think that's that's what we've got to do yeah and everyone can do it of course I yeah. mean you start asking the question soon as you are in the store you start with the manager the store manager that hey I wanted to know more about this worker who are making my clothes how much did they paid how much are the NSA building how long they have been working in that factory and by the way, do they have union in their factory? So she, the store manager would not have this answer, but this will drive her or him to go to the top managers, top bosses, that 
this is what I'm hearing from the people are buying our clothes, what I exactly should tell them. Yeah. That will ring a bell. So a small bell can make a huge noise when we gather together. Noisy woman. This is what I said before, which I love. <laughs> I want to just ask you a little bit about what makes you that driven and what makes you that noisy woman, which I would... Even Hillary Clinton's phrase, a nasty woman, you know. Good. I want to be all of that. Kalpona, when you were 12, when you first began working in a garment factory, and I believe you were 16 when you got fired from mm -hmm. working in the garment factory oh, yeah. for making a noise, for saying that you thought that workers ought to organize themselves. Can you share that story with me, please? Uh, yeah, of course. So when I joined in the factory and I had to go because my dad got sick and no longer work, so there's some, someone needed to, you know, afford to bring food in the table. So first it was my mom, he started work, but she couldn't continue because she got sick and top over, we ha she had a two months infant at home, which was my baby sister. So she did, couldn't no longer work and then me and my 10 years old brother, we went to the factory. 10 years old. Yes. And proudly he's union organizer today. Okay. So it is two of us who would bring food on the table for seven and a little money for my dad's medical. And I went to the factory without knowing any law. I didn't know even there is something called law. I didn't know there is regulation. I didn't know that how much should I pay, how, how long I should work, how these people need to be, you know, treated with me. So my work shift, both of us and, you know, the workers in those days, our shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. 16 to 20? Yes. And I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. It's just unbelievable to hear it. It is I mean, we're not talking about 1902. <laughs> I mean, sometime if you go to this garment-producing country, those we are there, okay? We are, we are in 1900 century. So at so, what point did you realize, all right, this isn't going to stick with me, I'm going to make yeah, a noise? So when I was 16, 15, I guess, in my factory, the bosses announced that they will cut our pay. And we said, no, 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 you cannot do that. But they didn't listen. They're not ready to listen to us. And we went for a strike. I didn't know even what that mean. You didn't know the word. Uh -huh. But I joined in the frontline striker because I was afraid to what would happen if I don't bring my full wage at home. Because my wage, a difference between the eating and hungry and going for hungry. So I was really worried. And... We won the strike, but bosses says that they will pay one more month, but then it will be a reduced pay. And we were like, okay, because I didn't know what should, how much should I pay. And then bosses has fired a couple of the strikers to threaten us that what would happen if we don't have job. And then one union organizer from, you know, from some federation contacted us. And they have said that they can help us with the, you know, to the sue the factory owner 
to my you know fired co-worker she she told her them but in the same time she has invited us to something called level law class uh, a level law training and i said well okay what is it oh well, yeah <laughs> i mean i was like what that mean <laughs> so a week later i went to the class along with many of my co-workers it was four hours long class that changed my life that entirely changed my life i was like what is that i mean <laughs> the law says i should work 8 hours the law says there is a mandatory minimum wage it says that it should be regulated all aspect of the work even it's supposed to save the building that i work in you know my bosses shouldn't just you know just lock me up when fire you know there is a fire in the factory you don't I mean, know and something beautiful i learned that i can organize i can organize my coworker we can have union and we can bargain with our demand and i was like my goodness mm-hmm. i'm going to do that but before i go to that i was you know at 15 years it is not easy to take a decision and so i spoke to my mom and said mom this is something i learned and this is what are happening in my factory and my mom she is my you know energy source so <laughs> she told me that if there is an injustice somebody always need to stand up and speak out if it is someone she asked me why not you and she says that you are strong enough and i'm with you so go for it your mama is a proper feminist she is and a I'm proper proud. human rights advocate across all genders but gosh isn't it fabulous the story of the powerful mum because we can all relate to it or many of us can relate to it so then i started organizing in the age of 16 i became a union president in my shop floor that was hilarious <laughs> and i was really noisy i was really really noisy so <laughs> but when i was 17 they fired me and blacklisted me throughout the industry it's made me sad because you know i just started but now these days i i consider it is a stupid i you know decision that factory managers ever taken they could just keep me in that factory and i could organize that only factory and become a union president in that shop floor maybe organizing a couple of other thousand workers in my neighborhood but firing me they made kalpanathar they made this noisy woman who knows not only in the country across the globe to make a better change for our worker those as working in the factory so Brilliant. stupid idea <laughs> but it was great for all of us huh? <laughs> yes. and today even right now you're in australia spreading the word about these things you travel around the world all over the place telling the stories of what's happening on the ground in bangladesh and not taking no for an answer i wanted to ask you about when you were in the us in new jersey and you were arrested for trespassing but of course it wasn't really what you were doing what what really happened there and what were you doing great yeah so yeah i do i do uh, quite a travel to around the world to let people know what's really happening because the way you know it is the glossy report from the brands which is not even close to the truth and maybe the some news is okay 
but you always get the bad news is when it is comes when it kills like 1100 workers otherwise you don't know that what is the day to day workers lives are like there you know look like in out there so it is important to come over and share well <laughs> yeah today i'm sitting in australia and i got arrested in the US that was in 2015 I guess 2015 was it and it was yeah. you were, you went to the offices of the in children's, the children's place. place and the reason we have been there because this children's place was one of the sources from Rana Plaza so it's a brand a children's wear brand i wasn't familiar with it an it american is the US, brand. american brand they're pretty famous in the america at some point in the europe and the canada making kids ma- wear right making kids wear but not taking, not was ready to take responsibility. All those kids who lo- who became an orphan, uh, being losing their parents in the death trap building in like Rana Plaza. So we are being asking these companies to pay the compensation for Rana Plaza victim and families. And I think those guys had paid some paltry sum of four hundred and fifty thousand oh, dollars. That was even after I get arrested. So we were asking eight million dollars from them. This is kind of like, you know, share of how much clothes they were being sourcing from that factory. And they wasn't here listening to us. They wasn't listening to us when we wrote them. They wasn't listening to us when we tried to get them through campaign. So, you know, greatly I had a Rana Plaza survivor with me during that speaking tour. She was barely 18. She was trapped in that building for two days after collapse. She survived, but... She was in PTSD. So we went to Children's Place to deliver a letter that she wrote to the the CEO, our executive director of uh, the Children's Place. So she was suffering from, did you say, post-traumatic stress yes, disorder? Yes, so she... And she lost her one of the finger in, in the d- disaster as well. So it was very brave of her to come with you. Oh, my gosh. She, go. she was super brave and she was sharing her story and telling people that it is important to buy clothes from Bangladesh because we need these jobs. But this is the responsibility you consumers should take in order to make our factory safer. So we were protesting outside and we requested to deliver this letter. And their security has allowed us to go upstairs to deliver. But suddenly they called police and said that we trespassed. First they said we should leave the building. We were on the way to leave. We were in, in front of the elevator though. But later one of the peers says they are pressing the church. So they arrested us. And my first reaction was, dude, where is your PR? <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. Because you couldn't you couldn't get a worse press story, could you? You shouldn't arrest a survivor of Rana Plaza and you shouldn't arrest activists from Bangladesh. This is going to bring a huge bad press for you. And that did. That definitely did. The Guardian and all the outlets, the bigger outlets like uh, Democracy Now!, they just ran that story again and again. And, all you know, this pressure really made Children's Place to pay $2.5 million right away in the Rana Plaza Fund. I want to give you a round of applause. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Extraordinary, really. Extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Kalpana, that wasn't the... I mean, you were arrested. I think you were released after a couple 
couple of hours. Is that right? Yeah. In that arrest in the U.S., uh, I was arrested like for three hours. And then we, we have been released. But interestingly, they changed the church. In the children's place, they stepped back. They said they're not bringing any charges. Then the Sakokas police station, the New Jersey, they brought the church and it says that town noise breaking ordinance, something crazy. I don't know. It what is a that? bit noisy. Oh, yeah. We're back to that. <laughs> so we're back to that. So they changed. But, you know, the church definitely, I mean, finally the church is dropped or well, ludicrous, finished. Yeah. Ludicrous charges. And we haven't convicted. It was like... Yeah. A few of these, stu- I mean, there was a Rodgers students with us as well. So I'm glad we can laugh about that because it is ludicrous and it deserves yeah. to be laughed mm-hmm. at, frankly. But you, it's not the first time that you've been arrested and it has been more serious for you. And it is very serious. You do put yourself in danger with the work that you do. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us a little bit about what can happen when you speak out in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. and not just you, but also workers. That's but true. Tell, so you were arrested in... 2010. 2010. Yeah. What, what happened? Yeah, that's true that I haven't arrested in the first time in the U.S. only. I got arrested in back 2010, was facing eight different criminal charges, and all of them say that I have been instigated the unrest throughout the industry. Literally, we were supporting workers' voice to increase the wages, and some of the case lead to, I mean, referencing to that I have committed a crime under 1908, some explosive provision, which can be bring a capital punishment for me. Which can bring capital punishment. Yeah. yeah. So those are the, you know, uh, crazy charges I have been faced. So I was in the prison for a month. I was uh, in detention for seven days. I mean, detention means like extensive interrogation area. I mean, they didn't beat me up, but they they tortured me mentally. So I have been interrogated for long, long, long hours, and the longest hours was 18 hours in a row. Oh, it's horrifying. It is horrifying. So, uh, but, but uh, my coworker who got arrested with me, along with me, he was severely beaten in the police custody. And he has been threatened to be killed. So we have been, you know, released. Uh, is this <clears throat> Babul? It is Babul. Yeah, thank you for remembering the name. Yeah, it is Babul who was severely beaten in the police custody. I mean, it is dangerous. It is dangerous it to is, speak out against that's true. economic is, forces. Yeah, it is that much dangerous that you can be killed and there is a practical example is that another my coworker who has been arrested in the same time I was in prison named Aminul Islam he has disappeared and his body has been found following morning a hundred kilometer away from the place he disappeared and the evidence totally says that he has been bitten to death he has been brutally tortured and nobody has been prosecuted, though, you know, strong evidence is there. It says that who has or who can be behind of this because the guy who has taken him last time lately has been found that he was paid agent of the national security intelligence, the army intelligence, the police intelligence. 
your friend, your colleague, an activist who is doing really important work, Aminal Islam. So he was murdered. It's an unsolved murder. He was found to have been beaten up and tortured when they found his body. Nobody has discovered who was behind this. But it was of such political importance that Hillary Clinton spoke about it when she visited Dhaka in 2012. It seems to be possible to join some dots here. What did we lose apart from you losing a friend? What are the ramifications of losing someone who was so important to the union movement in that way? I mean, it is a huge loss, of course. Just think about that. I'm pretty safe in here when I'm traveling to Australia. I'm pretty safe when I travel to other part of the world. But I'm not safe when I'm at back home where I born, which proudly I'm, you know, citizen of. And I love my country. My family is out there. But every single moment telling me that I can be the next, I can be facing fate of Amin al-Islam. So just think that, you know, if I being murdered, it will take like another few years to have another kalpana. There'll never be another kalpana. (laughs) (laughs) You're full of energy and light. You're full of hope and and positivity and it just radiates out of you. And even though some of these issues are just so bleak and so tricky and tough, you aren't. You're full of joy and hope. So what can we, and, and that is powerful as well. What are your hopes for the fight, if you like, or the movement? And what do you hope that happens in the sort of short-term future in your home? Hmm. Difficult question. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to give an easy answer for that. You know, my fight will not end until we can ensure a jobs with dignity. And a dignity can be earned with a living wage, a safe workplace, and a union voice at the workplace. So workers have right to bargain, right to organize and right to bargain. And I will not stop coming back to you all until you act to ensure that jobs with dignity. And trust me, together we can ensure that. Because you consumers, your voice is crucial. It is really matters. So act, it's not an easy fight. We'll be in a living voice campaign pretty soon. We're going to ask the brands to pay a few cents more. So the very recent two things that you can do, one of them, of course, the brand that you are buying clothes of, the clothes that you are buying, uh, go to them and ask them to add a few cents more with the every garment they are sourcing from my country. This is one specific thing you can do. Their few cents will not make a huge change in their value chain, but it will make a huge difference in back home with the workers living. It will make them a you know, respectable life. The second thing you can do that, just remember the beginning of my interview, I started saying that I haven't experienced any workers died in 2016. Yeah. And we all together done that. And we did it because of a code on Bangladesh fire and building safety the phenomenal job they have done there. So a court going to phase out next year, which is not good because... It was a five-year plan, wasn't it? It was a five-year plan, and the amount of job left and amount of time left is not justified. 
and a court just covering one third of the factory at this moment. So we want a court extension and your voice will be extremely critical to asking the Australian company to be with a court in the extension phase. And also in the same time who haven't signed yet, they should be on board. They should be on board. So I think I can end up with these two action call. Yeah, I love it. I love an action call. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's amazing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Because I love you so much. Because I love you. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.